Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Here's an ad I didn't think I'd be recording. Today's Shut Up Evan is sponsored by Clone A Willy, the at-home penis molding kit. Yes, you heard that right. The original Clone A Willy lets you create a homemade dildo out of 100% platinum cure metal grade silicone. Whether you want to replicate your penis or the penis of someone you love or even the penis of someone you hate, Clone A Willy is a fun, body safe penis making kit available in nine colors. That's right, nine, including light skin, dark skin, and even neon purple because why not? And since we're all about gender equality, the brand also offers kits for cloning other body parts. I'd say the name, but this is a family-friendly podcast-ish. To learn more about how Clone A Willy works and to purchase your very own, head to cloneawilly.com and use promo code SHUTUPEVAN for 20% off your order. That's promo code SHUTUPEVAN. Can I just ask? Shut up, Evan. I'm curious. Could you shut up, Evan? One thing I was thinking about. Shut up, Evan. So there are some rumors out there. Evan, shut up! Is it okay if I just ask? Shut up, Evan. Okay, but can I just... Shut up, Evan. I didn't even say anything. Welcome back to Shut Up, Evan. I'm, as you probably know, Evan Ross Katz. I'm joined once again by my co-host and friend, Sean Ross. Sean, Hi. Hello. As uh, Lady Gaga said at the 2018 question mark MTV Movie and TV Awards, happy Pride Month. Happy Pride Month. <laughs> Did she? Yeah, she declared it. And from that day forward, it continued the tradition of rainbows and celebrations of what it means to be LGBTQ+. Yeah, she really did invent pride in a lot of ways. There were prides before her, but I feel like it was a turning point. Although one could argue that things have really gone downhill since that declaration by way of 
LGBTQ plus rights and advancements in collective society's acceptance of us and our people. But that is a conversation for another day. No correlation to Joker Folia do. I mean, one could make one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But quickly, how is your Pride Month going? Are you feeling the pride? Honestly, I can't believe it's June. And I, uh, I am I feeling the pride like not yet, but I'm ready. I only have just started noticing the flags. And I'm like, Oh, my God, it's June. But I, like, I'm ready. I'm ready for Pride. I'm surprised we don't have like a pop star with a ready for Pride kind of like anthem. I'm surprised we don't have more pop stars creating songs specifically centered around Pride. Like, obviously, we have gay anthems and whatnot and gay bops and bops mm-hmm. that are made for gays. Like, these all exist. But I would love like a Pride anthem. Someone call Mariah Carey. Get her on the line. You know, she's doing L.A. Pride very soon. So she could, you know, debut her Pride anthem. Featuring Megan Thee Stallion even, because she's co-headlining with Megan Thee Stallion. I'm just, I'm riffing here, but like, I feel like that could be a hit. All I want for Pride is, finish the sentence. And then you get lots of features from LGBTQ plus artists who come on and finish each sentence throughout the Uh song. Who is the LGBTQ artist you would most want to see featured on Mariah Carey featuring Megan Thee Stallion's song? Jojo Siwa. Yeah. Or G Flip. Important. I'm going to go for a Brandy Carlisle, but I like the idea of like Brandy Carlisle and Jojo Siwa on the same track. Mm. I've got my eyes on Brandy Carlisle right now because this weekend is the Brandy Carlisle Joni Mitchell performances in Washington State. Wow. And I didn't get tickets. Not good. I would have been there if I got tickets. I was going to say unexpected, but like not that unexpected when you really think about it. Oh, no. Brandy Carlisle will hitch her cart to any horse. And listen, I get it. I get why. (laughs) I'm in the buggy behind, kind of like following along. But we are not here today to explicitly talk about Pride. However, I can make a seamless transition here in that we're here today because this past week, uh, a week ago today, was the 25th anniversary of the beloved series Sex and the City. And how I'm going to connect these two topics is that when it was leaked, when the news leaked that Kim Cattrall would be returning for a cameo on And Just Like That, a day later, Kim Cattrall posted the news on her Instagram in an image that's like not properly squared. Like she didn't get the image. It was just one of those things that bothered me. How was the quality of the image? It was very much giving screenshot over screenshot. Okay, yeah. It was giving like someone sent her a screenshot of the Variety article and Kim screenshotted it and then went to sort of like, what's it called when you like crop? Yeah. Mm -hmm. She went to crop the image and then like didn't quite realize that there's a function that can center it for you. Mm. I kind of at the same time, as much as I'm criticizing it here, I do sort of appreciate that like that approach to social media, the imperfections, if you will. So anyway, but Kim posted the news uh, and the caption was happy pride. Oh. So there you go. I'm surprised she posted it because isn't this sort of thing supposed to be a secret? Listen, conversation for for another day and conversation (laughs) for off the pod. But yes, it was supposed to be a secret and it's surprising because uh, no one else has acknowledged it from inside the show except mm. for Kim. But can you believe it? I can. Um, but it is Pride Month, and it is the 25th anniversary of Sex and the City, and those two things do go hand in hand. And so as such, uh, I was like, oh, Sean, let's discuss the pilot episode of Sex and the City. And 
interestingly, and this happens with you and I often, and, and sometimes it's you and sometimes it's me, where this beloved thing for one of us, the other person has never experienced. And so I just got to ask you, uh-huh. this is a very, very popular show. You are a gay man with a proclivity for popular culture. How have you gone this long? I was going to say dodging the bullet. I, I mean, but like, no, it's not a bullet. Dodging the... I don't know. The thing that it's hard to dodge, Sex in the City. It's true. It's hard. I mean, f- like for you, you never watched Game of Thrones, right? True. Similar. Well, Game of Thrones isn't really gay. It's gay-ish, but not gay. Not explicitly gay in the way that Sex in the City is gay. Or explicitly gay in the way that the recent Beauty and the Beast movie is. Uh, Beauty and the Beast is gay? Yeah, do you know about the explicitly gay moment? <laughs> Did you know about this? The one with Emma Watson? Yes. I watched it. It was touted by Disney as having an explicitly gay moment. Between who? Clogsworth and somebody? Between Josh Gad's character and Gaston, I believe. Oh my god. Beauty and the Beast director Bill Condon sparked a major conversation this week when he said Josh Gad's character LeFou has Disney's first, quote, exclusively gay moment in the film. I don't know enough about this to speak about this, but but anyway, when you when, when you said gay in Game of Thrones, uh, uh, my yeah. head went to Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> if you don't know, Google it. If they literally called it a quote-unquote explicitly gay moment, and it's been spoofed uh, recently on the other two. Okay, well, I'll have to re-watch that movie. <laughs> How did I avoid Sex and the City? Well, I wasn't going out of my way to avoid Sex and the City, but it premiered in 1998. Eight? Yes. Right? That 25 years? Yeah, doing the yep. math. And we just, it wasn't on in my house. I was like a child. I was, I, that's a child. I was a child at home and my parents weren't watching it. It's also a little complicated because obviously I'm, obviously I'm Canadian. And so HBO doesn't exist here in the way that it exists in the United States. So another network has to pick it up. I don't know for sure, but I feel like it was on like a Showtime, something a little seedier up here. And so that wasn't regular viewing in my household. That was where I would watch like Queer as Folk in the basement uh, alone in the dark. And so don't quote me on this, that it was on that channel, but it was, it was, it was that sort of a situation where it wasn't on like a mainstream channel that people just had. And certainly my parents weren't watching it. And so if I wasn't being exposed to it through my parents, I just wasn't going to be interested. And so I knew about it uh, because it was just in the zeitgeist and Sarah Jessica Parker was on the talk shows and I was, uh, I was a talk show watcher. But it didn't really pique my interest. Of course, as I got older, it was impossible to avoid. And I had dipped my toe in a few times. You did this great carousel post of guest stars. And two of those are two of my favorite people, which are Alanis Morissette and Jerry Halliwell. Very 1998. Very. Um, Of course, they came much later in the show. But I did seek out those episodes so i saw those and i saw an episode where somebody wanted to pee on carrie carrie instead suggested pouring hot tea warm tea on her leg Uh, and i think i saw one more episode just sort of like somebody put it on right and at that point there's just so much once a show gets like three seasons deep it's hard to get me to watch it because yes you know, I'm not you. I'm not you going into Survivor watching 40 seasons in 2020. Like, that's just not my style. So I just sort of like went, okay, I missed the boat on this. I'll let it be what it is. And so there's unavoidable aspects of the show that I've picked up, but I really don't know that much about it. 
So top level, watching this pilot episode, what are your thoughts? Okay, well, I was, I would say surprised. There were some things that surprised me. First of all, I loved the 90s nostalgia, which is actually quite funny because the show opens with Carrie talking about how the good old days are gone in New York City, right? And here I had just been watching it being like, wow, the good old days of New York City. And so that's like sort of a funny little thing that happens when you watch these old shows. And then I was surprised at how kind of normal everybody was. I think I enjoyed it overall. Didn't know they were half hour episodes. (laughs) Thought I was getting myself into an hour long drama. Uh, So that was refreshing. Love a half hour episode. And I don't know this the pilot episode, I think for me, it was like, felt like it was setting up the sort of manifesto of Carrie Bradshaw and setting the table for what's to come. But some things really surprised me. So just to give a little setup, this episode was shot kind of like a pilot presentation. I don't know if that's the the word that they would use, but basically it was shot in an effort to show the network, this is what this show will be. And that's why you get a lot of details in this episode, namely Carrie's hair and her apartment, which are totally different come episode two. Oh. Also, famously, Sarah Jessica, I don't want to say has like disavowed this episode, but she's spoken in several interviews, you know, much later on about the fact that like she wasn't so sure about whether or not she wanted to be a part of this show after filming the pilot. You know, she had a great film and theater career at the time, and I don't think the pilot it doesn't really give you a sense of where the series is going to go. And so I don't think she was incredibly drawn to it. I've seen some quotes of her like outright disparaging it. But then when I like clicked on the link to it, it took me into the Wayback machine. And it was like a website called like 365 gay. And I just was like, this could be a fever dream. I don't know if I trust it. Um, But I would be interested. Like I would love a DVD commentary from Darren Starr, the writer, Susan Seidelman, the director, and SJ talking about this pilot, because I'm really curious what their thoughts are 25 years later. But as I mentioned, uh, it is written by Darren Starr, who is credited as the creator of the show. It's directed by Susan Seidelman of Desperately Seeking Susan and She-Devil fame. Um, Great. Yeah, that is a a good, good... What's it called? Pedigree, if you will. Yeah. The Hollywood Reporter called the pilot, quote, flat, bitter, and flaccid, while the New York Times called it, quote, fresh and funny. Um, But I really do think it's the Los Angeles Times that had the best sense and sort of grasp on what the show was. Uh, They said, quote, "Uh, it is shamelessly superficial as the crowd it memorializes, but so sophisticated in its approach to shallowness that it's also great fun. And that's one thing I really do think about Sex and the City season one, in uh, especially, it's fun. And I will say, Sean, having you just watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer, mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of similarities between Buffy season one and Sex and the City season one as sort of being more or less like a test drive as to Mm. what the show grows to become. I'm really fond of the first season of Sex and the City, but when we're talking about Sex and the City as like the institution, as like uh, this, you know, culturally significant piece of media, those moments are not so much present in season one. I think the show, especially uh, with its regard as like sort of this historic piece of fashion media, that really doesn't kick off until season two. Um, so we, we open with this like 
four-minute sequence where we meet, I believe their names are Elizabeth and Tim. And I'm wondering, <laughs> you know, we who watch this episode, we know where it's going. Did you have a sense that these were two characters that were going to be present on the show? I thought two different things. I thought, one, this is a fictionalized version of Carrie Bradshaw, and she's writing about herself. And so I thought she was giving us backstory about herself that maybe she moved from somewhere in the United States. She's just sort of like changed the location. I thought this was going to be her origin story, and I think I would have preferred that. Then she's... It turns out this English girl is talking to Carrie Bradshaw and telling her this her story. And I'm like, okay, so they're friends. She's gonna be one of the friends. There's there's a fifth beetle, you know? And no. I, I, I was going to ask you, does this English girl appear in a future episode? Never comes back. Oh, what a shame. But you know, again to make a parallel <laughs> with Buffy. There's that character, Jesse, who's Willow and Xander's best friend in the pilot episode, mm. who is never seen or referred to again. I mean, granted, he dies and he becomes a vampire. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, it's sort of just like there's this character that you're introduced to that you're like, think that you need to get situated with. And then all of a sudden, out of mind, out of sight. No, she's never seen or referred to again. But I will say it is a trope that lasts throughout the series where like you'll meet an old friend of Carrie's for an episode mm. uh, and then all of a sudden like we never hear from them again and they're never mentioned. First of all, what a striking first image of Carrie. Yeah. The cigarette. And you know, this has become sort of uh, Carrie Bradshaw lore, you know, like her history with cigarettes. Uh, you know, famously she's photographed on the cover of New York Magazine, the single and fabulous question mark episode. Again, I know this is stuff you don't know, but people listening will. Cigarettes are a huge part of the show and on just excuse me, and in on in and just like that, God, in and leave it in, in and just like that, when she lights up a cigarette, which is the first time she does it in many, many years, it's seen as a sort of like, Carrie is like returning to her proper form. Um, you know, like the old Carrie is back. And you can really track, she quits smoking cigarettes. I believe it's in season three or four. It's the first or second. I don't want to give too many spoilers in case you watch it. But anyway, She's got a long history with cigarettes. I just love that image because, again, it's 1998. I just don't think you got a lot of leading lady figures just so brazenly. I don't know. I guess you, you, it's not like you hadn't seen women smoking on, on, on in film or television. It's not that. There's just, I don't know. There's something I find so striking about watching this, like, this character with a cigarette. It feels dangerous. Carrie walked so Mare could run. Truly. Truly. And I loved at that. I loved at the club chaos. Which, by the way, I have another question: Is chaos a staple location? No, but like one of Sex Ugh. in the City's uh, things is that it, it creates sort of these hyper realistic clubs that I'm sure are based off of clubs that yeah. the writers went to at that time. I did love that they had cigarette girls. Yes, they had staff walking around selling cigarettes. Yes, the good old days really are gone. They are. I mean, as Carrie says, she says, welcome to the age of uninnocence. No one has breakfast at Tiffany's and no one has affairs to remember. It's just a great introduction to Carrie and setting up the series. And then we get the shot of her. As I said, this is only her apartment in the pilot, but it's like you get the the coffee shop and she, the, the camera just sort of pans in and her windows right outside the coffee shop light. And she's just typing away on 
what is a computer that will stick around only for the pilot episode. Um, <laughs> and then soon after, we're introduced to our three other lead characters. So first up, we have Miranda. And again, it's like crazy to me that you're like meeting these women for the first time, but I love it. So first up, we have Miranda Hobbs, Esquire. Uh, her lower third is corporate lawyer and unmarried woman. She's eating yeah. a hot bar salad with boneless wings. Oh my God. I have a friend who'd always gone out with extremely sexy guys and just had a good time. One day, she woke up and she was 41. She couldn't get any more dates. She had a complete physical breakdown, couldn't hold on to her job, and had to move back to Wisconsin to live with her mother. What was your reaction to the hot bar salad with the boneless chicken wings? This is the thing. She's holding the wings in a pair of tongs at the camera I thought they were bone-in wings. Did they have boneless wings in the 90s? Weren't those just called chicken fingers? I don't know. It's funny you say this. I took a screenshot of the episode and sent the image to Billy, and I was like, what do you call these? Because I was like, I don't know how you refer to something like this. I saw a bone. I think that there were bone-in, which was wild. I specifically was like, this is the craziest salad I've ever seen. It's a salad, a very 90s salad. You remember these like iceberg lettuce and like shaved carrot salads? It's diplomatic <laughs> to call it a salad. It's 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 just greenery. <laughs> yeah. And then on top of it, two chicken wings for some protein. And then she's sitting in the park with a disposable fork, just sort of like... <laughs> you know, doing that thing where you just like, you know, put your salad in the, put your fork in the salad and it's like, hope something <laughs> sticks. Yeah. If we, if we were to go down this road, is she like, is she picking up the wings with her hand or like, for you, sure, you know, like in theory, I mean like this is maybe grotesque, but like you could stick the fork into the chicken wing. Yeah. But you don't have the leverage to pull the meat off, right? You need, you, you would need the knife. Yeah. Yeah. Just a very, very odd decision and, and, and incredibly un-Miranda. Not just the chicken wing, but just Miranda getting lunch at a hot bar. I mean, you do you, obviously, but like that was a surprising choice. I feel like Miranda, the Miranda I know, uh, would look down on people that get lunch at the hot bar. But who's to know? Who's to say? Uh, then we are introduced to Charlotte York, art dealer, unmarried woman. Most men are threatened by successful women. If you want to get these guys, you have to keep your mouth shut and play by the rules. What was your initial reaction to Charlotte? I feel like she has the least significant uh, story in this episode. Yeah, well, I have to say, just with regards to Miranda and Charlotte in particular, I was kind of surprised at how normal both of them were in the sense that they just kind of seemed like regular people and the reason that's surprising is because of course i know that everybody asks people are you the miranda are you the charlotte are you the samantha are you the carrie and so in order to have those kinds of personas you think they have to be like almost caricatures right and i didn't get caricature from virtually anyone except maybe samantha and even then there's some nuance in this episode yeah it's like muted caricature yeah and so charlotte like Seems like a nice girl. Traditional. Deals are. <laughs> Tell me this, though. I mean, like, you are a person who's on the internet. Do you uh, have any sense of these women from, like, meme culture? Uh, Charlotte, no. Of course, I've seen Miranda around. But are there any, like, specific memes that you're like... Because when I think of Miranda, there's one that goes around that perhaps you've seen, and it's her 
the morning after uh, a heavy night of drinking and she's like pressed up against the wall and the subtitle reads, the next morning Miranda woke up with the worst hangover of her life. And that is very popular within our community. Uh, it's you know, just, it's it's relatable. It's, it's certainly possible I've seen it. But... Okay, but there's no immediate, like I'm thinking of like, you know, eating the Chinese food out of the trash, not something you're familiar with. No. Um, putting the braces, putting on the goggles after the eye surgery. Like none of these images are pinging. Uh, no, if you showed me them, I, I might recognize them. But okay, curious. No. But you are picking up on something that I think is really significant here, which is that there's like these shades of who the characters become. Like the archetypes are all in place in this episode, but the like the iconography has not yet clicked in. Mm. Everyone is sort of being a version of who they go on to become, which is not uncommon in a pilot episode. I will say though, like this episode is very much a departure from the carry that we will see in, in, in future episodes. There's like a grittiness to Carrie in this pilot episode. I mean, the moment I always think about, and I think at the time that I first watched this, the moment that was like really stuck with me was when she's at the restaurant with Stanford. She sees her ex-boyfriend. She goes over there talking. She grabs his cigarette, smokes it. And then right before she leaves, she like hands it back to him. And it's something I like remember in my early twenties, like replicating with friends, like, you know, when we would be at bars and, and whatnot. And, and anyway, but there's just something about Carrie, uh, that I think, uh, the Carrie that is to come, I feel like there's like the Carrie of the pilot and the Carrie of the rest of the series. And I feel like the Carrie of the pilot is someone that the Carrie of the series would like meet for an episode and have a storyline with. There's like, there's mm. this uh, diverging because there's just a, a, a softer, I don't want to call Carrie soft because that's not really Carrie either. But again, just that, that grittiness of that, that quality about her is not present after this first episode. That's too bad because I really liked that. I was really surprised by Carrie's character in the way that she acted and the way that she carried herself with this very like, fuck you, I don't, I'm doing my own thing. I'm my own person. I'm going to carry myself the way I want to. And for example, when she, you know, leaves her hookup basically and goes out on the street, all of her stuff spills out of her purse and she meets Mr. Big, who that, that's somebody I'm familiar with. Uh, and just sort of like her attitude in that whole scene, I really, really liked. I thought it was refreshing and it like it made sense with the voiceovers that I was hearing. Also here, yes, there's just this undeniable like ballsiness about Carrie. And, and that doesn't entirely go away, but it's funny watching the trailer for season two of And Just Like That and comparing that Carrie to the Carrie of this episode and being like that, I'm supposed to understand those to be the same character, but they feel like two women that exist in completely different universes. But I kind of think that that's in some ways fun to be like, wow, this is the journey of this character. Um, and then we meet Samantha Jones, public relations executive, unmarried woman. Look, if you're a successful saleswoman in this city, you have two choices. You can bang your head against the wall and try and find a relationship, or you can say, screw it, and just go out and have sex like a man. You mean with dildos? No. I mean, without feeling. What was your initial reaction to Samantha, who I think has gone on in the lore of the show to become the show's most iconic character? Yeah, I, 
am very familiar with the idea of Samantha Jones, so I had a lot of expectations going in, and I think it was more or less, I you know, I could I could see what I was expecting to see in Samantha, and what really surprised me about Samantha, and sorry, maybe I'm jumping ahead here, is that sort of like look on her face while she's hooking up. Let's talk about that look. Can I go there? Yeah. Because you have this whole bravado going on through the whole episode that, she, you know, she will have sex like a man. That's sort of like what they're talking about all episode is like, can women have sex like men? Which means no strings attached. We're not going to get involved. We don't care. One and done, right? And then so she goes back to this guy's apartment after he's ditched Charlotte, essentially. And he's like, hey, I need you to leave before morning. And she's like, great. And then there's this zoom in on her face. And I thought this was the most powerful moment of the episode is sort of like her eye acting uh, where you can see some crack in the veneer and that she feels hurt or hollow in some way. Or am I reading it wrong? And is she is that is like that some kind of moment of pleasure that I'm like, but I don't think I'm reading it wrong. No. And, and I love that you caught that moment. And I think, I think it's, per I'd like to believe it's purposefully ambiguous, but I feel like Samantha fulfills the brief of the episode a lot better than Carrie because, because Carrie, the character is asking this question, like, can women have sex like a man? And so Carrie tries it out and then ultimately discovers that she can't. And what I love about the Samantha plotline, because Samantha's very much earlier in the episode, like, absolutely, like, this is the best it's ever been for women in New York right now. We should be having sex like men. And that ambiguity with Samantha where she's able to do it and she's going to keep doing it. Whereas, like, Carrie makes this decision that it's not for her. Samantha, it, it is for her, but in that sort of that facial reaction you're not sure if it's actually fulfilling her. And I think there's so much more nuance in that Samantha moment than Carrie, who like is just very conclusive about the fact that like she thought she could do this, but she sees him with another woman. Whereas I feel like Samantha in a moment like that would, as she did rather, grabs, you know, she gets rejected by Big, finds another man, um, but is left uncertain. And, 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 and I guess the question too is it's like, I would love to have seen Samantha's walk home uh, or her cab ride home rather, just because I feel like there's, mm. yeah, Samantha's the character that you leave this episode wondering where will we go from here? Who is this person? What are her stories left to tell? I think. So I have a question for you. How do you feel about this then? Because I personally, while I found that moment interesting, probably the most interesting moment of the pilot, I was a little bit let down by it because I really liked this conceit of women trying to have sex like men. And then in the end, it's sort of like, no, that's we we actually can't. And I felt like that was like a little bit taking two steps back in a way and then and then pair that with like the unmarried woman subtitles like it was just a little <laughs> bit i see i see the progress you're going for but your 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 conclusion is not getting us there yeah and this is something that i think sex in the city waffles on in that like you'll see some episodes and you'll be like oh my god i can't believe they were talking about this thing then. I mean, I think, for instance, minor spoiler, sorry, Sean, but like in season four, Miranda gets an abortion. And when I go back and I watch that episode now, I'm like, this is so profound 
in the nuance of how all four of the characters are responding to the abortion. And I love that Miranda like is admitting to the group that she's going to have an abortion and Carrie's reaction is like, oh yeah, I've had an abortion. And Samantha's is like, I've had three. I just think that frankness around something that on any other show would be like the big reveal. Sex in the City is able to like normalize it and then like, and then go a step further and be like, you've had one, I've had three, which I think is like, I don't want to use the word progressive, but I just think is like a great way in which the show was able to like do something that other shows were not. But then you have episodes like this one where it's sort of like they bring about this really interesting thesis and then ultimately they conclude, they like make a very clear conclusion where it's like women can't have sex like men, where I think a more, a later episode might've given you different answers to the question where one mm. of them actually might have found fulfillment. Um, or, you know, if I were to like sort of sex in the city this, it would be that the, one of the women is on this journey of like, can I have sex like a man? And it would be the man who cops feelings for her and she has to like get rid of him. I feel like sex in the mm. city is really good at sort of like spinning the thing where it's like, you think you want this thing and it's going to bring about sort of like, not gender equality, but sort of like, you know, uh, uh, even the score rather. But then you realize that like men have their own hangups. They're just different hangups than the ones you thought. That to me is sort of how I like to think about the show, which is why like I want you to watch more Sex and the City. Right. Um, <laughs> and I hope you will. Um, I also wanted to just point out one of the other great moments I love uh, when Carrie is having sex with Kurt you get this shot where like the camera starts on the floor and there's like the clothes strewn everywhere. Carrie's moaning. And then when it finally gets to Carrie's face, it appears as though she's dismounting him. And I'm like, Oh my God, like another one of these shows that like makes sex seem like this act where like you finish and then like you get off and then you're both lying next to each other. But then you get this sort of like reveal that Kurt is going down on her. And I love that. I feel like there's something um, way sexier about someone going down on someone and way like more risque on television uh, it's going down on someone as opposed to sex because sex has become this sort of like very robotic act in a lot of movies and so unrealistic where it's like the guy pulls out then like gets right up and you're like wait a minute like is where's the condom or like is his dick still hard there's all these questions I feel like this show was and this is continues to be a thing but the show is really good at like depicting a lot of the different kinds of sex that people have and the different ways they have sex yeah I also have to say aside from the frame on Samantha's eyes while she's at her little hookup. The other frame that stuck with me was when Carrie pulls the blanket off of Kurt. And I think that, and and we're sort of stuck with Kurt in bed in that moment. And I feel like if I had been watching this in 1998, I would have been watching and rewatching and rewatching that scene. But then you get that little (laughs) sliver of his boxer because there's the illusion that he's naked. Yeah. Oh, see, I thought you didn't. <laughs> no, you do. I Unfortunately, that was the whole... it's like oh. in the final frame in the bottom right hand of the corner. I hate that I know this because uh, I love that shot of sort of thinking like at any moment, if the camera just dips a little lower, mm-hmm. we're getting pubes, um, which we don't get. But we also, yeah, you you get that frame. Or if it's not a boxer, something is covering him. That's not the sheet. Uh, OK, I'm sorry to say. Um, but Kurt's cute. Kurt's so cute. 
is Kurt a recurring character? No. So one of the oh. tropes of Sex in the City is you'll never see any man more than once, um, save for the the pee guy, John Slattery, whose episode you've seen oh, one of his episodes. Okay. He stays around for two episodes. There's and then there are a few other moments. And then of course there are her boyfriends. But this show is very disposable with its men, which is another okay. uh, unique trope of the show that I absolutely love. Now before we sort of wrap things up, let's just touch down briefly on Mr. Big. Um, we do get the first reference to him being called Mr. Big. As I was watching it, and Carrie refers to him as that to Samantha, I was like, where is this coming from? Like, I don't, I've never understood the name, but in that moment, I was like, you you go back and watch this episode and think there's going to be some origin to the name, but like, there's not. And there, there's really, it's not as though like, they slept together and he had a huge cock and she's like, oh, I'm going to call him Mr. Big from now on. That's not like it at all. They barely know one another. Um, but let me just ask, like, when I go back and rewatch this episode, I am struck by how not sexy Big is to me. And I feel like there was a time that you would say that and people would be like, oh, what are you talking about? But I feel like in 2023, that's a more normalized opinion. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, he didn't really do anything for me. It's not that he's not good looking. He, I think he's fine. I was surprised that this is the Mr. Big that I've heard so much about. And I mean, he must have an interesting character developed for him over the years if he's sort of like built up in the lore in this way that I that I know so much about who he is uh so I was a little surprised that one he gets a nickname out of nowhere uh I that that's part of the reason I rewatched the episode because I was like I missed I missed where big comes from because that seems kind of important uh didn't miss it wasn't there and then I think that there's I think that there's potential for him. Like, I I will say I really loved that ending line of, have you ever been in love? And he says, abso-fucking-lutely. Have you ever been in love? Abso-fucking-lutely. I think that was, like, really great. That was a great way to end. And so I'm intrigued by him. Am I, like, hot for him? No. But at the time, the the media narrative uh, was really spun out to be like that, like, Big is the best a woman could ever do. It's like he's sexy, he's wealthy, he's successful, he's charming. And I look back on it now and I'm like, there are so many better men present throughout the series. Thank God he died. Oh, spoiler. That's my reaction. So overall, are you compelled, having watched this episode, to watch more because I will say, sorry to ask a question over a question, or no, sorry to, to, to keep talking after a question. Can you believe it? Uh, but like, even the next episode, I feel like is an evolution for the show. And then obviously, as I mentioned, season two, it really takes off. But like, do you feel the inclination to try more? Yeah, I mean, I'll definitely try more at this point. I watched a pilot twice in like 12 hours. So I do feel some uh, some duty to watch more to see where this goes. Now you've got me intrigued and you're doing the same thing that you did to me with Buffy, kind of tricking me into watching the whole thing by being like, well, season one is sort of like an experiment. If you really have to see a season two to get into it. And then by the time you're that deep in, you're like, well, I better watch the rest. So uh, I see what's happening here and I'm not opposed to it. Uh, so I, I, I'm willing to watch some more. It's I have to say that the surprise for me that it's like a 26 minute episode 
that's big news for me because mm-hmm. like that's that's bite sized. I can put it on while I'm eating and move on to the next thing in my life. I think we should touch down later this season of Shut Up Evan and have it be have me choose for you one of my favorite episodes so that like we can sort of go from Sean's first time to Sean being shown what I consider to be like the iconography of Sex in the City. I would be really curious to have that juxtaposition from you having like seen only a handful of episodes because like when the show is full throttle, like there are a few shows that go as fast. Like it hmm. just it has a way. Also, I want to say too, uh, the, the the writing of the show, one of the things it's really, really known for, that is not really so much present in this episode. There are some lines that like are lining, but like not really going anywhere. Carrie, when they enter Club Chaos says, Friday night at Chaos, it was just like that bar in Cheers where everyone knows your name, except here, they were likely to forget it five minutes later. And it's like, well, not no one, not everyone knows everyone's <laughs> name at the club. Like I get, like I like the like, I like the written line, like I get what we were doing uh-huh. here, but like there, it needs to be grounded somehow. So yeah, I feel like it's just like the dots of the show were there, were they yet connecting? Not so much, but like they were like beautifully rendered dots. That's how I feel about this episode. Um, one other thing I just wanted to mention, Carrie, outside Club Chaos, says that she might have to do the unspeakable walk home. So I just want to point out the fact that Carrie Club Chaos is located on West Broadway and Broom, we're told. Carrie lives on 73rd and 2nd Street. I Google mapped this ahead of time. That is a one hour and 29 minute walk. And she says that it's like just before dawn. So like we're we're late in the night here. And no doubt she's in heels. It's mm-hmm. like, girl, get a cab. Well, she couldn't get one. Wasn't that the point? Oh, did I miss that? <laughs> <laughs> she couldn't. She couldn't get a cab. Wait, this would be me being like, I thought I like picked up on this crazy thing, and I'm like on Google Maps. Meanwhile, it's like it's all laid out there. But like, doesn't doesn't the girl, doesn't the train run all night? I was just gonna say, girl, get on the subway. Yeah. Let's think. West Broadway and Broom. She can walk over to the city. Oh yeah, she's set. She can get a train from there. Girl, get on the train. But I do want to say, like, it does harken back to, you know, we live in this world of Ubers and Lyfts, and there was a time where you had to hail a taxi, and you could be in an area where that wasn't going to happen. And um, it just, it reminds me, I mean, I don't have that experience so much. I mean, I did come here in the age of taxis, but I was living in Manhattan. But, like, I do remember the days of MapQuest and family vacations and like my dad being like, I will not pull over and ask for directions. But do you feel like the good old days are gone? I do. I mean, like, obviously, like everything's easier now, but there was something yeah. to be said about like yeah. the, the the grit, right? Yeah. To bring it all yeah. back. I miss the grit. Um, okay, Sean, uh, two last questions. Are you a Carrie, a Miranda, a Samantha, a Charlotte, a Skipper, a Stanford, a big. Wow. Do we need a fourth guy? Who's the guy she fucks? Kurt. Kurt. Okay, so are you a, a big, a Kurt, a Stanford, a Skipper, a Charlotte, a Carrie, a Samantha, a Miranda? I probably wish that I was a Kurt. And uh, I, I don't... It's, it sounds bold to say that I'm a Samantha because I feel like that represents so much that I don't understand. But in this episode, I feel like I'm a Samantha... Because that sort of like front that you put up, but you, you know, I think we're all a little bit Samantha in the pilot episode, no? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially like gay men. I identify 
especially the gay one. I identify as an Elizabeth. Um, I'm an outlier here. Tori, who's Elizabeth? She comes at the beginning of the episode for those three minutes. Oh, the English girl. You say English. She is decidedly Australian, despite the fact that she identifies as English in this episode. <laughs> that is, the, that accent was wild. Um, really crazy. Okay, so tell me this much to wrap up on. Uh, if, you know, say that, say, I know you mentioned that maybe I got you intrigued, but say like we weren't having this conversation on the podcast today. You just watched this pilot episode. Is this a show that you think you would continue watching having just watched this pilot? And in 1998 or today? Uh, give me 1998. The good old days. For sure. Oh my god, I had nothing to do. Are you joking? Okay. I would be in my calendar. Well, let me tell you, if you were, if if and when uh, you stay with this show, you will be treated to a number of our faves: uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Jennifer Coolidge, Murray Bartlett, as you mentioned, Alanis and Jerry. There are so many iconic cameos to the point where I had to do a second ten slide carousel on Instagram, but I have a third one in me. <laughs> But I feel like we might be like, to get to 30, I might have to scrape a little bit. To scrape in. But I will say, if I were to do 21, the one that did not make the cut that I really tried to include was Tatum O'Neill, who I love so much, who shows up on this show. I couldn't get her in. And so maybe there will be a part three. But anyway, I would love to know what people think about the pilot episode of Sex and the City. I hope people do go back. I have one last question for you. How did you feel about the fashion in the pilot? I have a note about that. Uh, well, not so present. I will say I loved Char- or excuse me, I loved Miranda's silver bag that mm-hmm. she places on the bar at Chaos. That's like my favorite fashion moment in the episode. But this was a very fashionless episode of Sex and the City. In fact, like... There are so many uh, moments where there's like non-fashion choices being made, particularly carry around her apartment, because some of my favorite looks in the ensuing seasons are Carrie's idea of casual wear. So particularly particularly when she's at home on the laptop, type, type, type in a way, that's like when I sort of, you get some really out there Carrie looks that I really think are like, go on to become quintessential Carrie. But in this episode, it's just a, it's a very mm-hmm. muted color palette in general. Um, so again, quite of its time, but I think the show smartly veers into a a brighter, more playful idea of fashion and in turn, New York. I loved Charlotte's dress on her date. Yes. And she's giving body, body, body. Um, well that, uh, that concludes our thoughts on the pilot episode of Sex and the City. Happy 25th anniversary, Sex and the City. Uh, Sean and I will be recapping and just like that, which is premiering in just a few weeks. We will be recapping it on our sister podcast, Drop Your Buffs. (laughs) And it will be particularly exciting because Sean has seen now, what, four episodes of Sex and the City? So we're really coming at it from both sides. So I do look forward to that. I feel like fun times are to come. Catch catch our recaps of And Just Like That on our Survivor podcast, Drop Your Buffs. Yes. Yes. Now, we, as we stated uh, when we announced it on our Survivor podcast, there is the Survivor connection here, which is that Sundra Oakley, who competed on mm-hmm. season 13 mm-hmm. of Survivor, correct? Yes. Finalist, right? Well, if, uh, yeah, yeah. Finalist, Sundra Oakley, yeah, appears on an episode of Sex and the City. So for that, that is a bridge enough to, uh, you know, give us reason for the season to be recapping and just like that. So I'm really looking forward to that. I'm really looking forward to and just like that season two because I feel like I'm sort of devoid of things to make my personality at the moment. I feel like my last big moment was jury Mm. duty and I'm looking for that next thing to hitch my wagon to. Um, 
And so, oh, wait, well, I guess at the beginning we said Joni Mitchell and Brandi Carlisle is something to hitch the wagon to, but that's that's mm-hmm. a one-off, right? So it's like I'm looking for something with a bit more permanent. two nights only. Yeah, two nights only. Yeah. So hopefully, <laughs> and just like that's going to give me 10 weeks of a personality. Yeah, okay. Looking forward to it. Uh, when we come back, I am super duper excited for this interview. It's one I've wanted for quite a long time. She's the star of so many of my favorite movies, but chiefly among them, Waiting for Guffman, which we almost watched for today's episode, and maybe we'll visit down the line. But my God, I feel like in the canon of great Parker Posey films, obviously, Party Girl, House of Yes, Scream 3, Best in Show, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But Waiting for Guffman, I, I think is a bit more of considered a deep cut. I think to some people it would be like, her, I, I think Party Girl will always sort of be like her role. But anyway, she appears in this new film, Bo is Afraid, Ari Aster's Bo is Afraid, which is now available on video on demand. And uh, she comes in about two thirds of the way through the film. I'm not going to give away anything, but if you're looking for, it, when we say a star turn in a film, um, I think that like if there were a book of this, I think chapter one, well, chapter, <laughs> I don't know chapter one, but there would be a chapter dedicated to Parker Posey's performance in Bo is Afraid. Oh, like I gave it away. We have, I think I probably already did. And when we return, we have the truly amazing Parker Posey. Today's Shut Up Evan is sponsored by Sunday Riley. I was going to say it's the beauty industry's best kept secret, but it's really no secret. Sunday Riley is the go-to brand for those who want great skin at a great value. I'm a huge fan of all of their products, even though my application process could use some refinement, but my current favorite of their offerings is their Good Jeans Lactic Acid Treatment. Good Jeans deeply exfoliates the dull surface of the skin for instant glow and radiance. As dull, dead surface cells are removed, clarity and smoothness are restored. No wonder it was listed as one of InStyle Magazine's best beauty buys of 2022. Go to sundayriley.com to check out Good Jeans as well as their full range of product offerings. That's sundayriley.com. Shut up, Evan. Hello, how are you today? I'm good, how are you doing? Where where are you, where, where are you calling from? I'm calling from Brooklyn, New York, downtown Brooklyn. Sweet. I gotta tell you, Parker, I've interviewed a lot of people. There are a few that I have as much regard for, both as an actor and a lover of your memoir and the way you communicated your thoughts in your book. It's a real thrill. Thank you. I wanted to start by asking you because I actually recently reread your memoir and there's an anecdote in your memoir that reminded me of a scene from Bo is Afraid. So there's that sequence when his bathtub is flooded and it recalled to mind to me a memory that you share in the book when you were living in Chelsea in the 90s and you talk about how your bathtub would overflow and it would flood into the downstairs beauty shop. Did you make that connection at all? No, I didn't, but, and I should have because plumbing issues and flooding of apartments and the bursting of pipes in like my country home upstate um, is is a running theme in my life. But I have got a lot of, I'm a water sign, Evan. What can I tell you? Mm. I've got a lot of water going. The bath is overflowing. Yeah, I love the metaphors and, and the, the symbols in uh, Bo's Afraid so much. Like how long it takes him to wake up. He doesn't know what time it is. All the, all the people who come banging on his door, the graffiti outside his apartment, just the difficulties of what it can feel like just waking up and getting out your door. I think Joaquin is so funny. One of my favorite actors. So yeah, I was happy to, um, to jump in their water in that, in that crazy movie. What did you think of it? What do you think of it? 
My God, did I enjoy it. I have to tell you, Parker, this was my first Ari Aster film, bizarrely enough. So I actually saw Bo and then retroactively watched Hereditary and Midsommars. I saw Hereditary on a plane and I'd never seen images like that in, in my life. I'd never been so affected in this way by watching a movie and I was it, it's, it's a horror film, but it's like, it's more than that. He's like, I think he's like Stanley Kubrick. He can, he's really in his own, you know, he's a real auteur. He's a real storyteller. He's a fan of, of cinema. And so I, I watched that scary movie all by myself again when I got home. So many images of Bo is Afraid have stayed with me too. I wonder if you feel the same. Oh, absolutely. It's funny. It took me a long time after the film to re-enter real life. Yeah, I've heard that before. All I wanted to do was talk to people about it, but they hadn't yet seen it because I went to an advanced screening and I've been watching all of the press that you and your fellow actors have been doing around the film. And I imagine how hard it is to talk about this film because there is the plot of the film, but there's also the experience of the film and Mm. the emotions it evokes in all of us who see it. When I talk about Bo is Afraid, I'm kind of like, you just gotta go see it. It's like you're encountering something that you haven't encountered before. And and it elicits these feelings you don't quite know how to express. And then I go, then there's another part of my brain going, wow, how did how did Ari come up with the mishmash of this in creating these things for right now? Like that scene with the girls in the car when they're trying to get him to smoke pot. Yeah. Yeah, how how uh, scary and funny and where where are we, you know, and mean, right? Like, is this where kids are these days, you know, and how reckless and and don't quite know, like, is everyone a part of Bo's imagination or, you know, so what's to tell me? Because I don't look at press. So tell me what everyone is, <laughs> you tell me what everyone is saying about it because I can tell you what, you know, Patty and I both came toward the end of production and Joaquin had been like working for a few months. So we came at the tail end and, um, you know, only worked a couple of days, but you could feel that it was um, successful in creating um, this atmosphere. I came to set the day they were shooting a scene in the attic which was, and Ari was like, I can't believe you're, you're here on this day. I'm like, it looks, it looks great. Like, <laughs> okay. Uh, I would say the most interesting thing I've seen is there are these like 30 minute long YouTube videos that a lot of straight white men have made, as you can imagine, like breaking down uh, the interpretations or rather their interpretations of the film. It's a film that people really like sort of trying to decipher. And the best part about it is that if from what I've seen and read and heard of Ari, it's sort of up to the viewer to decide, right? Um, Ari is not someone that seems very conclusive by way of what you should take from the material, which I think is also the true sign of an auteur in many senses, which is that like, I delivered you the goods, how you choose to consume them, that's up to you. The timing of this is great because I think it's brought people back into theaters. Yeah. My scene with Bo is, is, is like, there's a lot, there's a lot to it. I just, I had like three takes and the second one was just alive in this way that felt haunted and, um, you know, like I was in the world. So my prep with to this was like, 
getting a body cast in Atlanta, you know, two hours covered in like dental mold and naked and, and kind of looking at my life and my body and my, and my work. And it was a deep and funny kind of process for me this, this time of like, I'm not just the body, you know, I didn't, I'm like, yeah, there, there it is. There, there I am. You know, I'm just there for like a second. And then, and the way that I, you know, that I exit the movie, I mean, it's such a like fine line of like annihilation and liberation at the same time, which I, I think acting has that, that quality for me. You know, if you find an opportunity where you can go into the dark cave, like go into the dark cave, you know, t- take that journey into that, into the unknown and see what that's like because you know you're going to come out the other end and you're going to be changed i I hope to write about it one day i'm still processing it all as you can imagine i hope you will because i feel like as much as i loved your memoir when i finished it all i wanted was more of the memoir so hopefully there can be a part two i want to ask you specifically about uh your scene in the film and a particular line of yours which has absolutely stayed with me and had the theater howling after bow climaxes you say i believe the line is you burst right through the bag do i have the line right i think so you know we're anticipating the fact that bow is going to die that's not the case as you well know um i'm just wondering about that line it's my favorite line i don't go into things thinking they're funny and i think i learned that from the chris guest movies you know you take it very seriously Uh uh-huh yeah, it's it's neat when you play, I mean, a, a, a small part, right? Then you can, there's so much you can read into it when you see it in the film and kind of with what Ari, you know, the context in which he was writing and the story that he was able to tell and the emotion behind it. I don't think I know of another director who specifically works in um, eliciting um, humor and fear and in heart, you know? So we're talking about like uh, matters of your feet, your, of the heart, right? Like mm. how open are you um, to go with, do, do you feel sorry for Bo or do you think he should grow up? You know, how do you feel about him as a hero? There's, do you know who Elena Ferrante is? Have you ever yes. read the books? Yes. Did you read uh, Frontumaglia? I did not. But Frontumaglia, if I have it correctly, it's, it is, it's, that's kind of what I'm talking about, the feeling, um, particularly for women. And I think this happens as we, you know, in our puberty and as we age of, you know, kind of the unknown territory inside that we really can't define. We really can't express, we don't have the words to express it. And that's Frontumaglia. Mm. I think artists, and, and Ari, certainly the, the filmmaker who is like, is pinpointing that kind of, that feeling. And um, you, you're not really sure. Like in the beginning when he's born, like, I mean, how did you feel when he was that, that first opening where you just- You are immediately in it, I felt. I was almost like that feeling of being strapped into a roller coaster. Um, that is what it evoked for me. I just had a feeling. And again, I came into it not knowing who Ari is as a director and 
in immediately it's like I and, and you know you keep using the word auteur I knew I was in the hands of an auteur straight away there was just that sensibility but you know the great thing Parker is like you know you mentioned Christopher Guest earlier and now Ari Aster you have been in the hands of these auteurs quite a bit throughout your career are you the kind of person that spends the time thinking what is it about me that attracts all of these geniuses to someone like me. I'm just so grateful. 25 years later, uh, Antonio had the staircase in mind in, you know, 2009, and it took all that time for it to come to fruition. And right at the same time that Ari got his movie together, and I'm the only choice for these guys. And that's how I've gotten cast, is that they write specifically for me because if it was going to go through the system, I would not get the part. So that's just how it is. They, there will, there's a list of other actresses that go before me. And it's always been this way of like, it has to be a strong director and they have to write for me, but they also have to fight, fight for me in a certain way. And uh, for me to, for, to, for me to play the part. Like in Superman Returns, like Brian Singer and those guys were like, we need, we need someone strong for this part that can act with Kevin Spacey. And so they're like, we have, this is, this is Parker. You know, you spoke in a New York Times interview earlier this year on sort of around this subject about becoming aware of just how intensely male dominated our stories are. And you said that as you matured, that's when you became more aware of it. I'm wondering when it was that you began to have that thought. I, I have to say my early thirties, you know, um, <laughs> it's been quite a while <laughs> of going like, Oh, or just realizing like the male gaze, right? And then, uh -huh. oh, well, let's put her, you know, uh, Blade Trinity, she's going to play a vampire. And then, you know, my boyfriend at the time was like, yeah, oh, Parks, that's so hot. I'm like, yeah, 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 you play a vampire. And I'm like, I don't really get it. I don't. <laughs> like when you're positioned in that and you know that there could be more to the story than just the part you know it seems like the men have the room to you know have their story but the, but the women are just like they're just there for the men I think I denied a lot of, of how kind of brutal it, it really uh is you know because you think like oh I'm I have good taste and I'm you know, I've, I've, I've worked really hard for, you know, not a lot of money and I really paid my dues. So, I mean, I should be able to do the same thing and continue work, but I did, that wasn't even available to me in that way. So it, it was kind of like, um, and along with my father who had uh, prostate cancer for 20 years, it was just like, I'm coming out of a time where that was kind of gut-wrenching that you know, where I don't know if you've been through things where your stomach is just kind of like anxious and you're suffering and there's like agony. So there was kind of like a mixed, there was a good mix of things that, that stressed me out. And then I got to find my, find myself in a position to like, you know, close the curtains and write a book. And so I really kind of, you know, 
met myself mm. as a as a writer and as a and then I could like oh I can this is kind of like acting you know alone or like communicating because I'm a storyteller so it's like oh well this is good to see it like this and then I can um I can really present and play with this as a form and originally I wanted to I was like I'm gonna write something that I could it's kind of the, like theater it's like a book, book of monologues and what would this look like so I went to small town theaters and brought myself as a cardboard cutout as a character and people could take pictures with the cardboard cutout and I would teach like monologues on stage and acting class because everyone wants to be on stage right now I've noticed that there really is not a lot of, uh there's not a boundary <laughs> between you know I just did a play between like the audience and the stage mm. that was the idea with the book to go out and 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 make some kind of theater with it in these towns like um um like root which i'm late to the party for rupaul's drag race um but like um the this the small town thing that they did um which was so wonderful and we need you on rupaul's drag race by the way i mean hopefully we get you as a guest judge on a future season now let me ask you this you know you talked about social media i know that you have social media you're not really active on social media but when you were in the New York Times, that article I was speaking of, you said, quote, to be online and have a social media presence is kind of to be your own magazine. I need to learn. I'm wondering, Parker, do you really need to learn? Like, is that something you're really interested in learning? Or is it something that you kind of recognize is not really for you? you it sounds like from what you're saying, you're interested in tactile things, in being out in the world. And I feel like the basis of social media is to sort of step away from the world and view it through a prism. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. I, I don't, we're up against an algorithm. Like, I think that comes, like I need to learn, like how much to, you know, there's this game that Elise was playing in our play and she's a younger person and it happened in the city and they were, they were online and <laughs> just sound like an old person, <laughs> but I think it was like a scavenger hunt. And, and then there was this ring that like lit up with like a walk sign or, and I'm like, oh, wow. People are like running around the city in like a mass scavenger hunt. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't, but it sounds very of the internet. It does. Yeah. So I, I think there's something around community building. Uh -huh. I haven't posted on Instagram. Um, I feel very protective because I'm, I'm nervous. I don't want to say the wrong thing, you know, because mm -hmm. I, I, yeah, I want to be, you know, a free person. Right. So I, I, I do think, I think there are things in new media to make, and I think they could be really could bring people down to some kind of collective, um, I don't know, hippie train. Mm -hmm. um, but really sound therapies, there's all such of like healing arts stuff that, that could happen in, that needs to happen in this traumatic Kafka-esque landscape that Ari Astor's Bow is Afraid 
so eloquently inhabit. You like that little, how I brought that around? Yeah, yeah, you got it right back there. Yeah, I got it brought it right back, baby. Yes. Now, you have one of those resumes, I need not tell you, that's chock full of beloved films. I'm wondering when people approach you and say, I loved you in this, what is your favorite thing the this they are referring to might be? I see my best in show, probably. Best in show. I don't know, party girl. I think there, there, there are parts that I, that I did like way back that I'm so glad the younger generation, like they, that, that they got it uh-huh. um, because I did it with that in mind. I'm like, this is for those kids watching, you know, the TV right now, get them up dancing, get them up like playing around, being stupid, being funny and just being free. Um, hopefully dressing like me for Halloween. There was like a part of me, I'm like, you know, that's really what it is. Like, yeah, just like with wardrobe and stuff, sometimes I'm like, it's just like Halloween costume. Do you know about cosplay? Do you have any friends that do that? Yeah, that go to like the conventions and the whole thing. Yeah, that's an outlet. So do you feel like uh, if you were to go to a convention at like say the Javits Center and you had someone dressed up like Libby Mae Brown from Waiting for Guffman, for instance, like that would delight you? Yes. I like that. You know what? I, I want to ask you something about Libby Mae Brown because um, Waiting for Guffman is a- among my favorite of your roles. Me too, me too, me too. And there's a, a deleted scene that is on the DVD and I'm sure lives on the internet somewhere today. And it's your character, Libby, auditioning for Red, White and Blaine, which is the musical chronicling the town's history. Um, I'm wondering what you can recall of that monologue. It's such a bummer that it's not in the film. God, Chris had... 80 hours of footage, you know, you cut, he cuts for jokes. He cuts for the, the timing of that. And what was so fun about those movies, you don't know you're being funny when, you, when you're taking it so seriously, right? Um, Chris is so relaxed and he's so um, kind and, you know, is also so funny. He just has that that brain and you just I just felt so comfortable with him, you know, so he called me and said, so um, how is your um, you need a song for uh, the audition and but also you can you can write a monologue as you know, these monologues, this is an actor. Are you an actor, too? No, I'm not. But I went to theater school, so. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you get these books and it's like, there's this like audition, you know, audition monologues for actors. Uh-huh. And it's just like a paragraph and everything happens in this paragraph. And so I just started talking about it. I said, well, well, you know, write it out and um, send it to me. And this was like right at the start of like email. So I just sat down and I and I wrote it and uh, in like an afternoon and I sent it to him. He's like, okay, that looks good. Um, and then we shot it and it was the first day I'd met Bob Balaban. We were all so nervous. Catherine and Fred Willard, who were like walking around the high school <laughs> auditorium, wherever we were, the classrooms, and we were really nervous. And that was fun. And I went and I just did that monologue. Well, who's lying in a bed in an insane asylum? 
plugged into a life support system and who's wearing fine jewels and expensive clothes and whose husband accidentally died just recently and left me all his money. Oh, this is a, there's a plug here that hooks into where he's breathing and stuff. Um, let me just take it back. And whose husband just accidentally died and left her all his money. And who's on top and who's on bottom now, huh? Jamie Lee Curtis, his wife, really, you know, she really loved that. And she will quote that, who's on top and who's on bottom now. Who's on top and who's on bottom now, yeah. Who's on top and who's on bottom now? Well, I'm glad that the monologue was memorialized on the DVD and that it exists today and that I got to ask you about it now. Now, Parker, I often have famous fans of the guest call in to the show to ask a question. And so I want to turn it over now to the actor, Matt Bomer, um, who has a question for you. Hey, Parker, my name is Matt Bomer. I'm a fellow actor and a massive fan going all the way back to Dazed and Confused, Party Girl, House of Yes, Day Trippers, Henry Fool, uh, Waiting for Guffman. The list goes on and on. You're always brilliant. And there's so many things I want to ask you, but I'm curious what it was like for you to be back on stage. I'm not sure when the last time you did theater was, but you didn't just dip your toes in. You're essentially playing, I think, a reimagining of Arkadna in The Seagull, which is one of the most iconic roles there is. So I'm curious what you learned about yourself as an actor, if you want to do more theater, and uh, if not, what would your dream role be, or do you just wait for the perfect thing to fall on your plate? Thank you so much for all of your brilliant work, and I wish you all the best always. That is so sweet, thank you. Yeah, I want to direct a play now. I mean, I think playwrights have such, uh, Thomas Bradshaw, who wrote this, is such a great writer. And I, I really love like, you know, the soul of, of good playwriting. And so I'm, I'm, I'm curious to what is, uh, what's out there now. Um, I forgot how terrifying theater was, like, like the saboteur really rears its head, you know, you're, you're like backstage and you're like, why am I doing this? Um, we only had, I'm like, I can't, or uh, this is so humiliating, or, you know, and then all of a sudden something else happens and you're out there and you're, you know, you're trying it and you're failing and you're finding it and you're, so we had three weeks to rehearse and then we had a week of tech. And then we had three weeks of previews and the previews were like, basically rehearsals on stage at night. And I went up the first night, like three times and the audience loved it. You know, I called for line and, <laughs> and it, it's just like, oh yeah, this is like, this is live. This is happening. This isn't about making something perfect. This is about finding it and living it every performance is going to build and build and build. And, you know, you're like attached to the mother load, you know, it's like invasion of the body snatchers and like, yes, all the wires are in your body and it's in your fluid and you're, imp you're imprisoned by it. And it's not like you feel like you've done something wrong, although you can because feel like that, because there's just like, some kind of like deepening or digging that just is happening because you have to do it again. 
you have to do it again. And so this other like, naturally it's like, oh, I got it, I'm gonna do this. That really worked last night. So, you know, let's try to have that happen again, like that kind of repetition. But then you don't take into account the audience who changes every night and their energy is so different. I would look through the cracks and sometimes I could just see like, oh wow, this audience is still like coming out of COVID or like I could feel like people are tired, but they're, they're coming out to the theater. Like it, it's, it's, it's never perfect. It's really humbling. Mm. Like something is just like building inside and you don't know what makes it, you don't know what makes a, a good performance, but when it, when it flies and you're in, and you're just in it and you're, you, you keep building it. So your, your body's just moving and, and you just finding it. It's, it's so great. It's so fun. Well, I look forward to the play that you will hopefully write that will take the New York stage by storm. I'm not going to write a play. Wait, are you writing or directing? Did I miss here? I would like to direct a play. Oh, excuse me. Excuse me. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, I wrote a play in college, um, but it was like a one act. It was like 12 pages. I'm, I'm interested in new voices. I would have put my, my, my name behind a new voice, right? Mm. Or a new, new something that I think would, could be fun that people would enjoy. We'll see. We'll see. I'm rambling. No, no, no. I like it. I saw you uh, playing earlier with your lipstick and I'm just curious what your shade of lipstick is. And is that your signature shade? No, it's not, but Angela gave it to me when she did my press. And this is going to be so, it is Chanel Rouge. Why can't I see Rouge? It's 817. Okay, great. Rouge Allure. <laughs> and speaking of uh, lipstick, I'm curious, how do you define or think about your style? I don't know. How would you? <laughs> well, it's kind of like what you were saying earlier about how with, when it comes to the costumes, right? You like lots of choices being made because the idea as you articulated it is the possibility that people could dress up as the character for Halloween. <laughs> and in order to do that, the character has to have distinguishing qualities. I think about your haircut in Best in Show, for instance, as like hyper specific, right? And so your style, similarly, I mean, I'm looking at your neck right now and that cut of the of that the shirt you're wearing and, and the choice to wear pink tinted sunglasses indoors, which I love, by the way. Um, so I would say that I think of your style as hyper-specific. Mm, I like that. But how do you think about it? I think style is fun. I think it's, um, I think it's a conversation in a way. I'm into um, comfortable ankle boots or I've always, I stomp around. So I wanna be able to, I like shoes that, that can be, you know, worn a lot. I'm kind of a hippie really. Um, but then I, I like to dress up too and um, have that have that kind of fun. Yeah, God, you know, women and their style. And you think of like that, the last hundred years of style and fashion and what where where we're at now, or design. A, a lot of new arts coming alive here. I even think about what you were saying earlier about sort of like that lack of appreciation for auteurs. I feel similarly in the world of fashion. I mean, I think about 
uh, figures like Isaac Mizrahi or Zach Posen who no longer have their namesake lines. And it's like, these are two of the most incredible artisans that exist in the world of fashion. And there just was a lack of appreciation for the work. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's not the age of enlightenment. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> there's not a renaissance happening now. Um, I, there's such talents and I know they'll find uh, another place, you know. I didn't, in my 40s, I was making, I was working with, you know, Woody Allen and Louis C.K. and a few other directors and I ran out of money. I wasn't getting paid enough. I had to sell my apartment. Um, the discrepancy and the lack of, of support. Um, but then you go like, well, this is a path, right? This is a path. So perseverance, um, you know, keep making, keep doing. They're both creative people and I know that they'll just be directed in some other way I just I saw Isaac not too long ago who's in a play right now yeah yeah just keep keep the keep the shimmy on you know keep mm -hmm. keep, keep moving keep moving keep moving through the tunnel <laughs> yeah it's um yeah I forgot your question uh, just talking about the, well, we led into the conversation about sort of the lack of appreciation of artisans, but it began with you defining your style, but the sense I get from you, Parker, tell me if I'm wrong, you're not someone that's overly interested in like talking about yourself so much as you have a curiosity about others, it seems. Oh my God, yes. Yes. I want to listen to you. I'm a good, like if we were dancing, I want to follow you Uh huh. so I could like you know, lose myself to song or, you know, I just, I'm, yeah, I like, um, I, it's why I love New York so much is that I, I you know, you go out the door and you're just curious, right? There's, you don't know what's going to happen outside, but I could say the same thing about being in the country too and in nature. Yeah, I'm about to go to LA um, in a few weeks. Um, so we'll see what California's like. But I am, I do, I do like that. I love, I, I love that connectedness. Someone was telling me about Bjork's new album is all about the uh, mycelium network. Yes. And I'm so up that alley. I read that book, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. If, if I could be in any other like business or like world, the, the healing arts and what they're discovering with the neural pathways of our brains and depression and and alternative and therapies and individualized medicine. I'm very excited and inspired by. Um, so these things, um, I think there's so much room for what the filmmakers and what actors and TV and streaming and all that, there's so much room for more, for new forms to help. And not just like in a like commercial way, but in a way that, um, calms us down mm. and I think podcasts are I think podcasts are doing that um I think I think what you're doing is 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 helping with you know openness and communication and so yeah thank you 
Well, thank you. I want to articulate if this is the last time I ever get the opportunity to chat with you. You mentioned earlier how you're not someone who's like online, you're not reading the reviews and whatnot. I want you to know, and for whatever it's worth, that the internet collectively uh, really, really loves you. You are very, very, very beloved. When I even saw that I had the opportunity to chat with you, like it shifted something inside of me, the mere thought of it, mm -hmm. just because you're someone who people are so interested in both as a performer and then also like as a thinker, you, Aww. and you've proven in the last hour, you aren't sort of bending and conforming the way society constricts us so much these days. Um, I mean, I come back to those gorgeous pink glasses and the Chanel lip and like, you just are constantly making choices in the world and in your work. And I think that's admirable. And I want you to know that the pockets of the internet that I'm on, you are like that top tier. That is so sweet and good to hear. And I'm so glad I have to say when, when I did, when Gracie passed and I was posting about that and the messages I got from people who were following me um, meant so much to me and that there are as so the little amount that I did, like I had to do with animals and, 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 you know, there, there was a sweetness and I do believe in that, that collective cohesion of, of goodness. And um, so that, that in your, your proof of that for telling me that. And someone even mentioned uh, to me that they were in like a dog park once and their dog came up and like sat on your lap by accident, by accident and they were super apologetic and you were like, no, no, no. <laughs> like you were so excited to have this dog in front of you. So even the anecdotes I hear of people encountering you around the city, I just want you to know that like, so whether you are directing next or you write a follow-up to your last memoir, whatever, there is a rabid audience of people that want you and whatever, wherever life takes you, there are a lot of, a lot of us that are gonna follow. Can I tell you a quick story, a dog story about what's um, the key, the key peel? Key and peel. I, I had just seen their show and I was at, um, at Sid Gold's. Um, I don't know if you've been to Sid Gold's uh, uh, piano bar in Chelsea that Joe McGinty has. Mm -hmm. And um, so he was there and I was like, oh my God, I have to see him. And I have to tell him how much I love that show, especially that the airplane one, the, the episode they did when they're on an airplane just made me laugh so hard. <laughs> so um, I went up to him and I said, I listen, I just want to introduce myself, um, tell you what a, what a fan I am of, of your show and that, that particular episode. He goes, oh yeah, well, we, we, we've met already. And I was like, uh, I always go like, uh-oh. I'm, like, I'm like, oh, really? And he's like, yes, you were at Washington Square Dog Run and you, you asked me to watch your dog as you went to get coffee and you asked me if I wanted one. Wow. I'm small town. Uh-huh. Small town. And I treat New York like a small town. And it can, really can be a small town. Like you may run into me next week very easily. I hope. And yeah, I hope so too. <laughs> Parker, thank you so much. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan! Shut Up, Evan is produced by me, Evan Ross Katz, with audio editing by Sophia Asmuth and social media by Griffin Dunn. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers for their financial support, and thank you to you all, the listeners, for helping us keep the lights on. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.